Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Katie Lambert. And I'm Sarah Dowdy. Today we're going to start our episode with a housekeeping tip from King Ludwig II, builder of Neuschwanstein and patron of Wagner. Sarah, take it from here. All right. So if you enjoy really opulent multi-course dinners with your imaginary friends, but you don't want a bunch of servants and footmen oh, I don't. interrupting the, no. the changing of the courses, interrupting the service, you should install a trapdoor dinner table. So that way, when you're done with your plate or when Louis XIV is done with his plate, you simply press a button and then wait. And your settings will descend into the floor. And soon enough, the whole table will reappear, freshly laid out, new food, new plates. And you can get back to entertaining your guests. That is a true story. And it's no wonder that Ludwig is part of a popularly requested trio of topics. The king himself, his castles, and his composer. And there's a lot of lovable weirdness here in this story and some eccentricities, plus some enormous building projects and bizarre royal families, which you know how much we love those. And, you know, who knows? We might even mention our most favorite theme of all. Which our most loyal listeners will know what that is right away. But uh, to start off, we're going to go for another common theme, which is sad royal childhoods. So Ludwig II, who's also known as Louis II, was born in Munich at Nymphenburg Palace on August 25th, 1845, which interestingly was the same day and same hour that his grandfather and namesake was born. And he is a Wittelsbach, a member of Europe's longest-ruling dynasty. They ruled Bavaria continuously from 1180 to 1918, which is when the last of their line was forced to abdicate at the end of World War I. And initially, this family ruled as dukes and duke electors. Some were Holy Roman emperors, but by 1806, their duchy is raised to a kingdom by Napoleon, and they become kings. Max I, Ludwig II's great-grandfather, is the first Wittelsbach king. But Ludwig's grandfather, King Ludwig I, is more famous for his womanizing than anything else. And he's even decorated the Nymphenburg Palace with portraits of all these gorgeous society women. It's called the Gallery of Beauties. You can still see it today. I liked author Michael White described it as a room of high-class pinups. But um, this is a pretty conservative state. So people would like their king to at least keep this discreet. And he loses it completely when he meets Lola Montez, who's a beautiful Irish woman who's pretending to be a Spanish aristocrat. She is a trip. We yeah. have to cover her in a later podcast. Yeah, we, we might. And they have this very open relationship. People really don't like it. And the king is forced to abdicate in favor of his son, Maximilian II. And this is, of course, Ludwig II's father. So Maximilian is not a big fan of being a king, though. He would really rather be a professor, study, read books, and he's also not interested in his son. So this gives you a little background on what Ludwig's childhood is going to be like. And his mother, Marie of Prussia, is exactly the opposite of her husband in every way except one, that she's also completely uninterested in her children and spends maybe an hour a day with them at the very most. She is athletic and pretty and is proud to say that she's never read a book. So I don't think she can hang with us, Sarah. No, not at all. We should also say that 
Livig's parents are cousins and that his family, aside from his parents being cousins, is severely inbred. Another thing to keep in mind as we go on. So little Ludwig becomes heir to the throne at two and a half. And life is pretty sad for a crown prince. He's lonely. He's neglected. He's also pampered, though, because every wish must be catered to. And he's uh, very undisciplined. And the birth of his brother Otto only further splits this very limited parental attention. And... Especially, this is bad when Otto starts to suffer from hallucinations and requires a lot more care and attention than Ludwig himself. And his childhood, as Sarah points out, is actually a lot like the palace he was born in. It's very formal, it's grand, but it's also isolated. And so perhaps it's no wonder that he turns to elaborate reimaginings of medieval architecture as an adult. But since architecture is such an important part of Ludwig's later life, we should go into a little more detail about his childhood architecture he grows up around. The Wittelsbach's official home is in Munich. They don't spend, or at least Ludwig doesn't spend a terribly large amount of time there because being in Munich means work and business. and Which we don't do a lot of in this family. No. <laughs> and Ludwig instead grows up at Hohenschwangau, which is about 40 miles away from Munich, and it was a palace built by his father. And the walls there are covered in murals of German legends, and uh, you can actually see these today. They're still there. And uh, these legends, along with biblical stories, really fuel this poor, lonely young boy's imagination. So you're bored at home, you read some Bible stories, maybe you dress up like a nun. <laughs> this is what he does. And our shy, imaginative boy is also really obsessed with his own power. It's not all these sweet, imaginative games. At one point, he tries to strangle his younger brother, and instead of apologizing, he says that Otto is his vassal and had disobeyed him. (laughs) And he steals from a shop and tells a governess it doesn't matter because everything will belong to him someday. So a very healthy mindset. Yeah. So becoming crown prince as a toddler was obviously the first major event in Ludwig's life, really shaping who he became and his future. But the second major event in his life is his discovery of Richard Wagner at age 13. And I'm really tempted to talk more about the composer in a later episode because he's really interesting and really controversial. But for now, we're just going to say that Ludwig loved Wagner. In caps on my outline. Yeah. (laughs) He wants to be Wagner's swan knight. He loves the music. He loves the big, elaborate theatrical sets. And most of all, he loves the stories, because after all, a lot of Wagner's music is based on those same Teutonic legends that Ludwig has literally grown up seeing around his bedroom walls. Yes, his imagination comes to life uh, in a moody teenager. And our moody teenager became a moody king when his father died in 1864, possibly of syphilis. This might be our other new theme. And 18-year-old Ludwig inherits the throne. And he looks like a king. He's very tall. He's 6'4". He's slender. He has thick, curly black hair. He's extremely handsome. He looks like what Prince Charming should be. People go crazy when they see him during the funeral procession and... He's a romantic hero as well as the king. Yeah, it almost only helps that he's so moody and so bookish. It it adds to this. The handsome brooding man. Exactly. So 
Like we said earlier, though, he's really obsessed with Wagner. And one of the first matters of business when he's king is to send for the composer. And the very indebted Wagner moves to Munich makes all these immediate financial demands, like, I need a new theater, King Ludwig, and Ludwig is happy to oblige. The politicians, however, um, freak out, to put it in <laughs> nice historical terms. They're also getting really worried, not only because Ludwig is spending so much money on this composer, but because Ludwig really loves Wagner, like, um, loves, loves Wagner. Object of affection. Yes. <laughs> he writes him passionate letters, and Wagner, who's smart enough to work his job, returns in kind. Wagner at the time is, of course, hooking up with his mistress and future wife, Cosima, who's the daughter of Franz Liszt, and the woman largely responsible for later creating the cult of Wagner. And... Once the teen king told Wagner that he would give up his kingship and come live with him, Wagner realized perhaps things had gone a little too far, had to talk him down, hides the woman in his bed, and eventually the Bavarian cabinet says that enough is enough, and Wagner is kicked out after a year. Yeah, we don't want another Lola Montez, everybody. So... Moving on from this early infatuation, Ludwig seeks consolation in his best friend, who is his cousin, Sissy, also the Empress of Austria. And she's a little out there, too, like a lot of the Wittelsbachs. She suffers from anorexia. She suffers from manic depression. But she really understands Ludwig, and she understands the problems he's facing and is able to talk to him. You know, they write letters to each other. And Suddenly, he's engaged to her little sister, Sophie. And you might wonder how this extremely awkward young man comes together with this beautiful young woman. And their apparent interest, shared interest, was Wagner, of course. And I feel like today they would meet on some sort of Internet message board about <laughs> We're music. both attractive and we both love Wagner. We should probably get married. So they get their official photos made up, they plan the wedding, and then he starts to get cold feet, and he pushes back the wedding date. He asks his doctor to certify him as unfit to marry, Mm. and finally he tells Sophie that there is not the love which is necessary for a matrimonial union. So burn, Sophie. And that, of course, is because he was probably gay. And in addition to his obsession with Wagner, uh, his secret diaries disclose liaisons with uh, lots of actors and maybe some military officers. And they were destroyed in World War II. But a lot of his inner turmoil seems to have come from guilt about his sexuality because he was a devout Catholic. Yeah. But this isn't all to say that Ludwig is totally isolated from matters of state at this point. What we've described so far might sound like somebody who isn't going to work every day. Um, but that isolation really comes later. In 1866, he actually enters the Seven Weeks War on the side of Austria against Prussia. Um, but at the defeat of Austria, he signs an alliance with Prussia and works to reconcile these two big powers in Germany. So this alliance with Prussia comes into play in 1870 when there's a war against France, and he sticks with Prussia, uh, avoiding a potential Franco-Austrian-Bavarian alliance, and Prussia wins. And then at the urging of Bismarck, Ludwig actually helps put out the call to all the other princes of Germany to unite into this German empire under the rule of the Prussian king, who is from there on out known as the Kaiser. But Ludwig is 
kind of disappointed with aspects of this new arrangement. It's not exactly what he had hoped it would be. His territory isn't expanded. And, you know, as as one of the kings who's not the Kaiser, he doesn't have as much power as he'd like. And he thought there would maybe be some sort of sharing of the crown between his state and Prussia. And that's not how it worked out. So he's still king of Bavaria, but now it's just a state and not a kingdom. And again, he's a bit of a figurehead. So, you know, why bother? He retreats into increased solitude. And what do you do when you don't really have a kingdom to run? You don't have your composer to live with and you really don't want to get married. You build your own Kublai right? Or three of them. So Ludwig builds three castles and designs three more, and they occupy him during his increasingly isolated life that starts in the 1870s. And from this point on, he's mostly alone. He dines alone. He goes to his theatrical performances alone. He switches to this vampire-like nocturnal schedule where he gets up at 5 p.m., um, but his first major building project, he doesn't, he doesn't start off right away with a huge castle. He starts off with a remodeling project. And that's redecorating his father's castle and his childhood home at Hohenschwangau. And he must have caught a nice view from there because he starts to plan a bigger project. Which of course is Nischwanstein across the lake. And this is seriously the Disney castle. And while it's not the most elaborate of his creations, it's definitely the most recognizable. It's a reimagining of what a medieval castle looks like with plenty of French Rococo and Bavarian Baroque thrown in. And it's planned by a theatrical designer, not an architect. And it's basically Wagner themed with swan shaped taps and an indoor grotto from Venusburg, the opening apparition in Wagner's opera Tannhauser. And it takes 17 years to construct. It's actually never finished. And Ludwig only spends about six months there total, all added up together. So the next place he builds is Linderhof, which is a homier sort of residence. And it's about 12 miles from Neuschwanstein. And he builds it between 1869 and 78. And it's actually modeled on Trianon, though. So not terribly homey to most of us. Still an elaborate palace. He really liked the Bourbons. His coaches and his sleighs were staffed by coachmen dressed in reproduction Louis XIV livery. He would spend about two weeks of every month at this house and had a harmonium set up for Wagner along with that disappearing table we mentioned in the intro. But it's here that he starts all the weird stuff, waking up at 5 p.m., dining with his imaginary friends, then going out for midnight carriage rides as he, again, just retreats more and more from society. But he, he sticks with the Wagner theme for this place, too. Linderhof has the Venus Grotto, another Venus Grotto, imagined again from Tannhauser. And he would row around in the man-made lake on this gilded seashell. You can look up pictures of this. It's yes, pretty cool. Sarah sent me one today, and we decided <laughs> that might be a better use of our time. <laughs> and the lake is actually illuminated by one of Bavaria's first power plants, because who wants a dark creepy cave made out of plaster. It needs to have all these cool blue and red lights. It also had a Moorish pavilion with a peacock theme, perfect for opium smoking. If you're so inclined. (laughs) And a hunting cabin with plenty of faux wood stumps and fake trees. Again, 
Disney Alert. But his final big project was Heron Hemse, which was constructed between 1878 and 1885. And this time, he really honors the Bourbons and even tries to upstage them because the castle is a copy of Versailles, only bigger. And better. Yeah, it has an even grander hall of mirrors where he would read under the light of seventy-nine candelabras with one thousand eight hundred forty-eight candles. It seems like you'd need a lot of servants for that. Or he would take a bath in this marble tub that took eight hours to heat and fill. And we, we didn't mention this yet either. The castle was built on an island in the middle of an alpine lake. A very exclusive island, I would imagine. Which, uh, yeah, a very exclusive island. It's going to make it harder to build, too, if you have to row everything out to, to the island. Well, and this castle is his downfall. Only 20 of the 70 rooms are finished. It cost more to build than Neuschwanstein and Linderhof together. And he only spends nine nights there. So multiply those candles by nine nights. Exactly. So this makes us come to the question, how did Ludwig pay for all this? And initially he financed these castles himself. He saw himself as a modern sun king. And accordingly, he thought he needed to celebrate this through the construction of castles, through the patronage of artists such as Wagner and others. But it's not that long before he runs out of money, obviously. He starts to borrow on his own pay, way, way ahead. He tries to get loans from the Shah of Iran, from the Turkish Sultan, from the Duke of Westminster. He even orders his cabinet to find loans and is very threatening and forceful when they're coming up short. And so by 1886, he's being sued for debt, which is terribly embarrassing. And he has this harebrained plan to rob a London bank. doesn't work out. So the government is starting to get seriously worried. Like, is our king crazy or is he just spending way too much money? Either way, this has got to stop. He was certainly lonely, he told an aide-de-camp. Sometimes I call one of the domestic servants or postilions and ask him to tell me about his home and his family. Otherwise, I would completely forget the art of speech. And in his private journals, he appeals to dead rulers for help. Louis XIV, Charles I of England. These are his friends. And it's interesting, a lot of the stuff I read about these castles and about Ludwig, apparently the tour guides refrain from calling him the Mad King anymore, which has long been his nickname. It makes sense. It's not a very nice thing to call someone. Sorry for using it in our title, Ludwig. (laughs) Eccentric is more often used today. But his family definitely has some mental health issues. His brother, Otto, who we mentioned at the beginning, is schizophrenic, and he's put into an asylum. His aunt, Alexandra, is put into a convent because she's positive she swallowed a glass grand piano. But if Ludwig is crazy, he's very lucid at times, too. He writes these eloquent letters. He studies French history and literature. And he's even politically astute when he actually actually tries, tries, you know, when he's not worrying about his castles or his opera and actually gets to work. Well, his best friend, I think, says it best, Sissy. And she said he's not mad enough to be locked up but too abnormal to manage comfortably in the world with reasonable people. So that's the assessment from the person who knew him him better than anyone. Yeah. So finally, the Wittelsbachs worried that Ludwig would bankrupt their family, go to the prime minister and say that, well, you know, we'd be okay if 
you depose the king. And so a panel of doctors declare Ludwig insane without seeing him. It's kind of like the tabloid. <laughs> tabloid. Um, and the noted psychiatrist, Dr. Bernhard von Guten, is one of these. And so on June 10th, 1886, Prince Leopold, who is Ludwig's uncle, declares himself Prince Regent and Otto will be king officially, Otto I. And Ludwig is at Neuschwanstein when the delegation finally comes to arrest him. And the soldiers and peasants try to stop them, try to save Ludwig, but he's led away. He's taken to the Wittelsbach's Castle Berg, which is on Lake Starnberg, and he's attended there by the doctor. And that's when things start to get kind of weird. On June 13th, he asks to attend Mass, but is refused. And later in the day, after a huge meal, lots of wine, he gets Dr. Gooden to walk along the lake with him. But they don't come back. And a search party finds that the king has drowned face up, which is strange because he was a very good swimmer and he was only in four feet of water. Dr. Gooden is also dead. So what happened There are obviously a lot of theories about this, and the main assumption for many years is that the king committed suicide because he had no future. He was essentially a prisoner, and Dr. Guten drowned trying to save him. Others have suggested that he was perhaps trying to cross the lake to meet people sent by Sissy and escape to Austria and escape to her. And then others say he was murdered, maybe even that he was shot and not drowned at all. And we would probably know more, I feel, if we opened his crypt in Munich at St. Michael's. All of the Wittelsbachs are interred there, and they have identical crypts, but his stands out because it's always covered with flowers. And he's still very popular, Despite the fact that he nearly bankrupted his family, his castles are today among Bavaria's main attractions. Who doesn't want to go see the Sleeping Beauty castle? Yeah, well, and interestingly, they started to become these major attractions. I think within weeks after his death, people were paying to go to them. So in the long run, it's been a pretty good investment for Bavaria, I'd say. Ludwig's own memorial is far simpler than any of these castles. It's across in the lake at the spot where he drowned. But Sarah and I were talking about how it's always so strange for us to talk about these subjects who are supposedly so well-loved. We keep reading, you know, the well-loved so-and-so, but we have no idea how (laughs) these people are actually viewed in their own countries. Yeah, if you're in Bavaria... Let us know what you think about Ludwig. It always is a little funny saying, supposedly you people love this guy, but, you know, (laughs) maybe not. It's easy enough to see, though, why he would be so well loved. He's a gentle pacifist king. He's extremely eccentric, but that only makes him more interesting. It's also always interesting, like we talked about in our Emperor Norton podcast, to try to diagnose people posthumously and figure out what sort of mental illness Ludwig was was grappling with if, any. if it was, in fact, anything at all. And that's one of the reasons I think people are so interested in him. That and his gorgeous castle and this mysterious fate that we simply do not have the answer to. Yeah. Well, that mention of Norton brings us to listener mail. 
So our first email is from Derek in California, and he was, of course, writing about the Emperor Norton podcast. And he actually mentioned that he's seen Norton's grave at Woodlawn Cemetery before. But his message was mostly about how his father is a part of the historical society E. Clampus Vitus. And he said that they have gatherings that go on for a couple of days. They involve a fair amount of alcohol and that the society itself was formed during the gold rush. But probably the most interesting part is he said that one of their slogans is no known cure, which means that after you complete your initiation ceremony, which is kept secret to everyone outside of the group, then you were a member for life. So he's hoping for a podcast on this group. Um, let us know what you guys think. Cool historical societies? I don't know. Maybe we should form our, our own historical society. <laughs> a drinking one or just a regular <laughs> type? I have another grave visiting email. It's from Kyle, and he recently went on a tour of St. Louis Cemetery Number 1 and visited Marie Laveau's grave and sent us all kinds of pictures. But he also said, while on the tour, the tour guide told the story of the wishing on her grave. She said that when your wish came true, you were supposed to come back and circle your exes. And none of the exes are circled, as you can see from the pictures he sent us. She did encourage us to make a wish on her tomb, though, without the desecration part. And he said also that he'd included a picture of a ridiculous-looking pyramid-shaped tomb that is the future resting place of Nicolas Cage. Oh, dear. (laughs) It's, It's hard to follow that. If you would like to send us any cool pictures or interesting facts, we're at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We're also on Twitter and Facebook if you want to find out what we're up to. Our Twitter is Missed in History. And please feel free to check out our homepage. We've got a cool article on castles if you search for it at www.HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. And be sure to check out the Stuff You Missed in History Class blog on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage. 